listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Church, it's a, a joy to extend my welcome to you. My name's Gabe. I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad you're taking the opportunity to worship with us. We're in the midst of a sermon series. We're actually wrapping up a sermon series called Wired for Worship. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Psalms and talking through the fact that worship isn't something some people do in parts of life. It's actually something that we all do in every facet of our lives. And the Psalms helps us see how worship can trickle into every dimension of life. Uh, So we've talked through worship in every dimension of life. We've talked through work is worship, hope is worship, forgiveness is worship. And today we're going to talk about perseverance is worship. And in order to do that, uh, we're going to navigate a discussion about depression. Depression is sensitive subject matter, uh, and it's something we've, we've probably all heard of, but I want to give us a couple of definitions to make sure we understand that we're all talking about the same thing. Uh, the first one comes, uh, it, it comes from the American Psychiatric Association, uh, who devotes time and attention to really honing in on the nature of what depression is. They say this, depression is a common and serious medical illness that negatively affects how you feel the way you think, and how you act. Depression causes feelings of sadness and or a loss of interest in activities once enjoyed. It can lead to a variety of emotional and physical problems and can decrease a person's ability to function at work and at home. One pastor and author synthesizes depression and and gives this definition of it uh, juxtaposed with grief. He says this, Grief is depression in proportion to circumstances. Depression is grief out of proportion to circumstances. Depression is something that affects a lot of people and the numbers are rising. Uh, Statistics based on clinical depression, these are people who have actually been diagnosed with depression, uh, say it affects about 1 in 15 adults in the United States and about 1 in 6 people will experience it at some point in their lives. And again, the numbers continue to rise. So it's a problem that is swallowing up the world that we live in. And as followers of Christ, it should be stated that that left unchecked, we can become callous to joy because of depression. It can swallow us. We can lose the thing that God provides for us through Jesus Christ. Depression is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. I actually remember uh, the time that I got the diagnosis that, I was struggling with depression. Have you ever been the last person to find something out? Like really the last person to find something out? A few weeks ago, uh, some friends got together and and we were talking about a popular Netflix show that we had finally all seen uh, the most recent season of. And and we asked, what did you think of the ending? And, And one person said, I thought it was really great the way it ended for this character. And, and the other two of us were like, but what did you think about the ending halfway through the credit scene? And she looked at the two of us like, I can't tell if you're kidding or you're serious. We were dead serious. She hadn't seen the ending and she felt like she was the last one to know. That's how I felt at the counselor's office when she was diagnosing me with depression. See, I was the last one to find out. And when she said, 
Gabe, you, you're not able to, to move past this melancholy, this constant state of sadness throughout your life because you struggle with depression. For the first time in over a year of meeting with her, I looked at her and she was looking at me like I was crazy. She couldn't even hold it in, my counselor. So I look over to my wife and she was also looking at me like I was crazy. That was a little bit more normal. But the two of them together looking at me made me really question, I, I don't think I've had depression. Are you, are you kidding? And I did a quick scan of, of my life and all the signs were there. I grew up in a home with, with substantial alcohol abuse and, and subsequent collateral damage of, of verbal and physical violence. On top of that, uh, I was a cutter from the age of seven to the age of 19. I look at my life, and, and even beyond that, outside of the home, there was conflict and relational strife all around me as I sought my identity and my purpose, and I just felt hollow no matter what I was engaged in. I went on to college to, to get a degree in psychology, and, and the psych majors had this little inside joke that none of us really cared about other people. We were just getting a degree to try to figure ourselves out. And then we'd, we'd laugh and just move on with our everyday lives. Beyond that, there was trauma that, that has happened to me in my adult life and tragedy and losing a child. There is a, a plethora of evidence of why I would be struggling with this. And it was just occurring to me like I was the last one to find out. And I had trouble believing it because someone taught me when I was a new Christian, 2 Corinthians 5, for anyone who is found in Jesus Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And I struggled with the idea that how could I be a new creation in Jesus Christ and still allow all these ugly, painful things to keep affecting me? Well, I learned that that's a misuse of Scripture. And while we are a new creation in Jesus Christ, that doesn't just remove the pains and their effect on us before Jesus returns or calls us home. And it finally started to sink in. Just because you're a Christ follower doesn't mean you're immune to mental health issues. So I had to learn how to navigate it. My wife graciously told me this week, you suffered from depression before the counselor told you that you had it, but now you struggle with depression because you've actually entered into the fight. My hope with us isn't to remove something that we can't remove apart from a miracle in Christ, but rather to teach us how to persevere through suffering, through mental anguish, through depression. It should be stated that, that any mental anguish, any mental health issue is not merely about emotions. There are many more variables in play, but emotions are an important part of mental health issues. Emotions are powerful. And let me say, emotions are created to be good for us. Describing the God-given gift of emotions, the author of the book, Untangling Emotions, say this. Even our darker emotions are not a curse but a gift, a dangerous gift. Sometimes it feels like giving permanent markers to a toddler, but a gift nonetheless. Our emotions, all our emotions, give us the chance to share God's heart, purpose, and perspective Emotions flow out of what we care about the most. 
Our emotions can't and shouldn't change apart from a change in what we care about. And perfect faith doesn't mean complete control over our emotions. Because God tells us we need new hearts more than we need new feelings. Our goal is not to stop feeling emotions because emotions are a gift given to us from God. My goal is not to give you tips and tricks to feel better emotions. The goal is to learn how to participate with God in the process of ongoing heart change. Perseverance is learning to participate with God in the ongoing process of heart change. And Psalm 42 gives us a glimpse of that. What a great gift it is that God didn't leave us to our own devices, leave us to come up with our own opinions and ideas about how to navigate suffering, mental anguish, and things like depression. But he's written to us about it in his word. Psalm 42 is a beautiful picture. There's two things I want to do after reading this for us. I want to give us an overview of Psalm 42, and then I want to give us some tools for our toolbox to learn how to persevere through mental anguish. Let me read this for us. Psalm 42 says, For the choir director, a maskal of the sons of Korah, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before him? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with so many leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. I am deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Miser, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. What is this psalm saying to us? The very first line, it's important that we note, uh, for the choir, a masculine of the sons of Korah, that's pretty self-explanatory. I don't have to unpack that one. Just kidding. You're like, what, what is that? Um, for the choir director, a masculine of the sons of Korah. It's important for us to know that while many psalms are songs to be sung, this one is explicitly a song to be sung. How do we know that? First of all, it's written in the Bible that this is for the choir director to be presented to the body of people following God a masculine for the sons of Korah. There were different groups of people in God's economy in, in the nation of Israel that was meant to, to exist to honor God. One of the groups of people were priests. They were called Levites. The sons of Korah came from this group of priests. They were like the worship leaders of the gatherings at the time when the Psalms were written. This Psalm was intended to be sung. 
That's why it was important for me that we sing it together or have it sung over us in this space because it was intended to be a song sung over the people of God. You can even see the pattern of how it's written. There's a block of lament, of crying out to God for help. And then there's a refrain. It says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in such turmoil? I will still put my hope in God. And then there's another lament, and then there's another refrain. It's built like a song because it's a song. So what do we learn from this song that was given to us? We see that there's an external struggle. The psalmist is saying that he's being oppressed by actual enemies. Remember, this was written by a real person at a real point in history. And there's an outside force, an enemy that's attacking him. And he's being taunted. He says it feels like a gaping wound when he's asked the question, where is your God? When someone says that, it means that you look abandoned. You look lost. You look helpless and hopeless. When someone would ask you, where's your God? They're questioning the validity of your faith and the reliability of the God that you worship because of your circumstances. And his enemies are taunting him with that question. So we see this external struggle that's happening. But there's also an internal struggle in this psalm. He says his soul is downcast. He uses the words that I am depressed. Have you been there before? Have you struggled with depression, whether it's, whether it's just for a season or whether it's a pattern throughout your life? Because I would suggest if you haven't, you're actually in the minority. Living in a world that's affected by sin, that's, that's broken by giving glory to other things other than God, by loving things more than we love God, means we live in a world that is fractured in every which way. There is not an ounce of this universe that isn't affected by it. Which means, even as followers of God in this world, there will be times when we're experiencing the brokenness ourselves. It's no different for the psalmist. He's got an internal struggle. Men, I want to speak directly to you for a second. This is not reserved for women or for millennials like myself. Feelings are something that we actually all have. It's good for us to be aware of that. For generations, instead of feeling, a lot of people, a lot of men in particular, would use other coping mechanisms when they would feel bad to either try to feel numb or feel good. So that proves feelings matter to you, even if you want to disregard them. Feelings, trying to replace ugly feelings with better feelings are what leads people down the dark path of substance abuse, of extramarital affairs, of addictions, of anger problems. When we try to stuff our feelings, but every once in a while they just pile up until they explode. And then we can go a little bit longer, stuffing, 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 and then another explosion. Those are all coping mechanisms because we long to feel something different. The psalmist is just being honest about it. We have the opportunity to go to God for help. We need to allow ourselves to feel, but we also need to understand the rightful place of our feelings. And the psalmist is saying that that he feels like every time he's drowning and he gets close to the shore, another breaker crashes on him. Do you know how horrifying that imagery is? When you feel like you're, you're clinging to everything you can for help and you're still feeling crashing waves on you, he's desperate, but he's honest. 
feels like he's going to die without help, but he's still channeling his hope in a direction. And what does he say? Twice he says, I will again praise him in verses 5 and verses 11. What does that mean? I will again praise him. It means he's not praising God right now because he can't, because he's in distress. He uses the future tense. I will again praise him, but he's not right now. He begins this psalm with his thirst for God, but he says he's only eating and drinking his own tears. And then, church, the psalm ends without resolution. The psalmist's prayer is not fixed, and then he moves on. So what's the message we get with just an overview of Psalm 42? Perseverance is an act of worship. We don't just worship God when he fixes our problems the way we think he should. But the psalmist teaches us we can worship God when we continue to trust him in spite of our circumstances. Do you see how precious this chapter is for us? When you can learn how to be in an unhappy place and abide in God, stick with God who promises to stick with you, that is worship. When you can learn to be in a place that is unhappy and still abide in God, that is worship because it is perseverance. And that's an overview of Psalm 42, but I also want us to take away some tools for our toolbox when we navigate the depths of mental stress, pain, anguish, depression, anxiety. It would be a disservice for us to, to navigate this as a theological treatise or to write a paper on the fact that hard things happen in life. We have a gift in Psalm 42 that gives us tools that we can learn from, that we can take for ourselves and apply to our own journey. And there are six things I want you to take away that the psalmist teaches us through his own pattern of worship as he navigates spiritual and emotional sorrow. This should teach us that the agony of depression should cause us to crave God more. The first thing that we learn from the psalmist, these are not in, in the order of the verses. These are rather in the order that I think our hearts need to hear them. The first thing we need to see is that the psalmist asks God why. The psalmist asks God why. Listen to verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? The psalmist is living in the tension. In his head, he knows that God has not forgotten him. But then the very next line is, but God, why have you forgotten me? How can he do that? Because he feels forgotten by God in the midst of his circumstances. If you care about people and you're in a position to comfort someone, let me tell you this. Don't come in hot wanting to be the theology police if someone is sharing for you in the heat of the moment how much pain they're feeling. There will be a time to, to correct wrong theology, but sometimes when we're in the middle of pain, we say things like, God, I know you haven't forgotten me, but why have you forgotten me? If you want to be a comforter of other people, don't come in with guns ablaze teaching them good theology. There will be time for that down the road, but there is a place to allow people to feel. The greatest gift that you can give someone in the midst of sorrow and grief and depression is to be present with them. And if you're present with them long term, I promise you there will be opportunities to redirect the heart to who God is and what he's done and the hope that we have.
I remember uh, in, a, in a season where my depression was, was swelling up after our son had died. I was already a pastor at this time, and I was meeting with another pastor in the community where we lived. And, and the depression was swelling, and I needed someone safe to talk to. And he uttered the words to me, can't you just stop thinking about it for a while? And I felt crushed because it wasn't a choice to think about it. To this day, uh, I don't know if you can strangle somebody to the glory of God. So I didn't do it then. But it seems like an instance like this is a time where that could make perfect sense. The scriptures let us come to God without a sanitized prayer. God doesn't say, clean yourself up and then talk to me. If you're living in the tension of your feelings and truth and going to God, you're doing the right thing. And trust me, his shoulders can take it. It is good for us to cry out to God in the midst of our mental anguish. Remember this, church. Avoidance is a symptom of mental health problems, not a solution for it. Avoidance is a symptom of mental health problems, not a solution for it. Denial always leads to decay. Secondly, the psalmist affirms God's love in the midst of God's sovereign will for him. That's a mouthful, so I'm going to repeat it, but there's not a better way to hear this concept. The the psalmist affirms God's love in the midst of God's sovereign will for him. Listen to verse 8. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. He's in the middle of hard circumstances. And he doesn't equate his circumstances to whether God loves him or not. Your circumstances and God's unending love are not the same thing. God is working in and through and above all of life's circumstances. That is what it means that God is sovereign. That's a big word that's important for us to know. God promises to work in and through and above everything that we're enduring. Listen to how that statement is summarized in the New Testament in Romans 8, 28, when the author of Romans says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for our good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The scriptures don't tell us good things work for our good. They don't tell us some things work for our good. They don't tell us the things that you're able to recognize are good work for your good. It says all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That requires that we believe God loves us in the midst of his sovereign will, even if he allows us to endure pain for seasons. What he's promised us in the big picture is far greater than any of our minds could comprehend. We need to not forget his love in the midst of our anguish. Thirdly, we see that the psalmist is singing. This is good for us to remember. Song is important. Listen again to verse 8. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night. Did you notice how, how powerful songs can be? I'm not just talking about Christian songs. I'm not talking about your favorite songs that we sing here on Sunday morning. I'm talking about all songs. If you're driving and listening to music and you feel sad, 
regardless of the genre that you're listening to, if you hear a sad song, what's that do? It makes your sadness swell up. If you're feeling happy when you're driving down the road and a song like Happy comes on the radio, what's it do? It causes your happiness to swell up. Song is powerful. That's part of the reason when we come to this place on Sunday morning, we try to sing songs that have theological depth, that remind us of truth. Because songs are not only powerful, they're also easier to remember than just reading words. How do we remember the songs that we've sung throughout our lives but still have trouble remembering the scripture that we're reading in times of need? God's given us a great gift. In his sovereign design for all of creation, songs can be something that we remember to remind ourselves of truth and we hear the psalmist singing truth to himself. Psalms are not just meant, songs are not just meant for happy times either, they're meant for all times. Uh, one, of the, one of the greatest songs that our family has sung since the death of our child is, is Horatio Spafford's song, It Is Well With My Soul. It's a powerful hymn that wasn't written in happy times. Horatio Spafford wrote it after the sudden tragic death of his daughters. And while he was grieving, he was able to say, it's well with my soul. We still sing those songs decades and decades later because we need to be reminded of the same thing. One of my, my modern favorites is John Mark McMillan's song, How He Loves. So many people are moved by the, the emotional flow of that song, but it's also important that you know that he wrote that song after one of his best friends died in a car crash, not just on a whim when he felt the Holy Spirit making him feel happy. The psalmist sings because song is designed to open up our hearts. What type of songs are you filling your hearts with? Fourthly, we see that the psalmist preaches the gospel to himself. Listen to that refrain in verses 5 and verse 11. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Pastor and author Paul Tripp argues, and I believe he's correct, that there is no one more influential in your life than you because you talk to yourself more than anyone else. You wake up in the morning and begin talking to yourself. Throughout the day, there is a voice in your head, not only directing your steps, but telling you how to interpret what's going on around you. That is you speaking to yourself. And the psalmist is preaching the good news to himself even when he doesn't feel like it. You talk to yourself more than anyone else. What is the predominant voice in your life saying to you? Is it building you up or tearing you down? Is it suggesting to you that you should be self-sufficient or is it pointing you to the sufficiency of Christ? You're talking to yourself. What is the voice saying? I think there are three clear voices that we see in Psalm 42 that might be able to help us navigate and understand what voices we hear in our everyday lives. In Psalm 42, we hear the voice of feelings. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? I'm depressed. Those feelings tell us what they want us to believe. We also hear the voice of enemies in Psalm 42. The enemies are questioning the validity of his faith and the reliability of his God. 
There are voices that we allow in our lives that cause us to question God instead of trust God. What happens when that voice emerges for you? Are you able to replace it with truth? Or do you just trust the lies of the enemy? Thirdly, we hear the voice of truth. The psalmist is telling himself what he believes is true about God. What God has disclosed to himself, both through his word, the Bible, and also through his experience with God through life. What's the predominant voice in your ear throughout the day? Is it your feelings? Is it the enemy? Or is it truth? My, uh, my family has a saying at home, uh, whenever, whenever someone is, is acting incorrectly, whenever someone is misbehaving, and the, the challenge for me is that any person is allowed to tell any other person. We've all been deputized to do this. The saying is, get your orthos in order. It's from Latin. There's three orthos. I don't care if you remember these. I want you to hear the point behind it. I know some of you are thinking, great, Gabe, you're setting your family up to to continue giving job security to counselors in the future by saying things like this. No, get your orthos in order just just means this this quick thing. Let me say it. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy. Those are three orthos. They belong in that order. Truth actions, feelings, that order. That's what we're telling our children. That's what we're telling ourselves. Get your orthos in order. It starts with truth, then actions, then feelings. If you reverse the order and go through life letting your feelings navigate you, they're going to tell you how you should behave based on how you feel at any given point, And then you're going to decide what's true based on the outcome of how you behaved and felt. That will lead us to a road of destruction. That's like a train with a locomotive at the end instead of at the beginning. It's not intended to work that way. We're called to get our orthos in order. The the governing means of our behavior is going to come from feelings or truth. What do you allow to lead you through this life? Truth, behavior, feelings. Feelings are not bad. We need to know the rightful place of feelings. We're not robots. Behavior is always motivated by something else. We need to allow it to be truth. Fifthly, we see that the psalmist remembers his past experiences. In verse 4, he sees, I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. He's talking about remembering the times when he was helping lead the worship gatherings. In the Old Testament, they would be able to, to worship God in his presence wherever the Ark of the Covenant was. So it was, it was always geographical. You wanted to be in close proximity to it. And he's saying, I'm nowhere near the presence of God right now. But I remember the times that I was. You know what this means for us? So many of us have such a shallow view of what happens in this place on Sunday mornings. So many of us think about Sunday mornings in terms of entertainment or information, but the way God designed worship gatherings, not church, not church services, worship gatherings is for us to meet with him in this place. Do you realize 
even in this cafetorium, that's what it's officially called, this cafetorium that's converted into a sanctuary on Sunday mornings, people have literally moved from death to life. And you've been in the presence of that. Do you know that when we come to this place, there are people dealing with all sorts of things in their everyday lives. Some of them are not able to sing for themselves, yet they surround themselves with brothers and sisters who can sing over them in order that they can just have enough energy and encouragement to go forward and live out the week before them. God is always with us, but God meets with his people in a unique way in this place. We should cling to Sunday mornings because they remind us of the purposes and promises of God. Sunday mornings gives us an opportunity to remember our identity as adopted children of God and our purpose to bring his glory everywhere we go in life. Do not settle for this being a place of entertainment or information when God meets us in a unique way here. A way that can spur us on when we don't think we can do it on our own. A way that can see people cross the threshold from death to life. That is special, friends. That is what happens. That is why we prioritize Sunday mornings. I remember the, the days and weeks after our son died, uh, there were so many people that, that would say, it's okay if you, if you don't want to go to the church service this week. And let me say, there, there is permission. There, there, there is a chance for people to stay back and heal. But, but my wife's and my response is, where else would we go? What else would we do? Not just to fill the time, but to allow people to put a hand on our shoulders and say, we're here with you. You're not alone. Spaces like this allow people the opportunity to raise their voice to God on your behalf when you can't, but you know that's what you need. This is a spiritual act of worship. Sure, it's only one hour of our week, but it has the opportunity to infect the other 167 hours of our week when we treat it as a worship gathering, not just a service where we go to be entertained and get some information. The psalmist remembers his experience with the body of people under God's authority. And lastly, he craves God. I think this is the central message of all the psalms, but it's the central message of Psalm 42 as well. Listen to those first two verses again. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before him? He thirsts for God like a deer pants for flowing streams. Listen to what he's not asking. He's not asking for God to change his circumstances. He's asking to experience God in the middle of his circumstances. That is the greatest act of worship. When we started this series, we began with Psalm chapter 1. We said that the worshiper is like a tree planted by flowing streams. The author of Psalm 42 doesn't want to be transplanted. He wants to be planted where God is. He doesn't crave new circumstances. He craves God in the midst of his circumstances. That is our act of worship. To worship God persevering 
And God is always giving, always giving what we need. As we spoke earlier, whether he's going to give us lighter loads or stronger backs, he is always giving. But he's always giving by giving himself. We need to cling to him. This this psalm resolves with the person of Jesus, the person that the whole Old Testament was pointing towards. This Messiah, this Savior that was going to come was known in the Old Testament as being the man of sorrows. The hope of the psalmist and the hope for us is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus who himself wept in grief over suffering and death. Jesus who in Luke's gospel account on his way to the cross went to the garden of Gethsemane to cry out to his father in prayer in the midst of his own anguish before he would take the weight of the world off of our shoulders. And in sadness, this Luke says that Jesus was agonizing in prayer. That word agonizing uh, in Greek, the, the language that the New Testament was written in, is agonia. Agonia means to agonize in pain, but it's got a second meaning too. It means to fight. Jesus was agonizing in pain and he was also fighting which teaches us to struggle and to fight are not at odds. To be depressed and to persevere are not at odds. And how did Jesus show us that? He went to the cross to end our struggle and to make us safe. That is who we cling to. That is who the psalmist was looking forward to. How much more so should we in the shadow of the cross, knowing what he's already done through his cross and resurrection? Zach Eswine says in his book, Spurgeon's Sorrows, our way of fighting is to hide behind Jesus who fights for us. Our hope is not the absence of our regret, our misery, our doubt, or lament, but the presence of Jesus. Our hope isn't the absence of our pain. It's the presence of Christ in it. Perseverance is learning to participate with God in the process of ongoing heart change. There's six tools for your toolbox from Psalm 42, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a couple more. In addition to what we learned from Psalm 42, I want to encourage you to do other things if you're in the midst of the persistent pattern of depression in your life. Listen to these things. First, cling to friendship. Lean on people. Don't go it alone. Ask them to be there for you. I know that seems unfair when you're the one struggling with depression to ask someone else for help. But ask and allow the people of God to show up for you. Proverbs 17.22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine. This might also mean that you need to set boundaries with unhealthy people who are keeping you from worshiping God in the midst of your depression. Secondly, stay active. Uh, One writer says, do this with quiet hours and calm retreats. Sometimes we fill our lives with things to avoid our troubles and we don't let our minds process and our hearts feel and that just causes things to build up. Stay active in the midst of depression and mental anguish. A third thing is counseling and I would say specifically Christ-centered counseling because you can know that a counselor has shared goals with you of pointing you to Christ and persevering. 
And we can help point you in a direction at King's Community Church. I've vetted some counselors in the area. If you believe that's the next step for you to experience flourishing and to help you persevere, please let us come alongside you. You can email me. You can talk to me after the service. I would love to point you to trustworthy, Christ-centered counselors. And the next one is, is medication. This is a sensitive subject for people in the church, and, and some people in the church don't really handle this well. If, that's, uh, if, if someone in the church has hurt you by pulling the rug out from under the idea of medication being a help, I apologize. And I want you to know that under the right circumstances, medication can be a good thing in the midst of, of psychological distress. Um, before I went on antidepressants for myself, I, I struggled to believe that I actually needed them. And I wasn't anti-medicine. I was just too proud to think I needed it. And finally, my counselor said, you know, if you had a broken limb, you would have no problem going and taking pain medication and getting a cast on it. Why do you treat your brain any differently? It's been broken by trauma. It's not functioning the way that it was intended to. You need help. So I went to my physician. They had never met each other before. My, my physician, when I said my counselor suggested that, that I talk to you about antidepressants, my physician said, that's really good because if you had a broken limb, <laughs> you would have no pro- problem taking pain meds and getting a cast on it. So I was able to find a counselor and a medical doctor who had a unified view of what it meant to have medication as part of my plan of healing. And some people might be on medication for the rest of their lives and others might need it for a season. We need to learn to understand that taking medicine is a wise act of faith, not of unfaith. Lastly, uh, you might surround yourself with books or sermons or podcasts that you can hear when you're you're not in the midst of the presence of the the people of God. And I would say especially Christ-centered material that can help you preach to yourself when you're having trouble doing it on your own because you can't remove those unhealthy voices. You need to replace them with godly voices. So think about what you're replacing them with. For some of us, we're in the midst of sorrows. For others, you might be uniquely positioned to walk with others in sorrows. So my encouragement to you, if you're going through trials, is to not give up and to seek help. You are in a place among a people who want to help you. But if it's not you that's in the midst of that right now, it it might be good for you to see where you can come alongside people. Maybe in this body, maybe it's in your workplace or in your neighborhood. But another takeaway from Psalm 42 is how we can be with others and point them toward true hope that allows us to persevere. And that hope only comes from Christ. Church, will you pray with me? Father, I repeat my prayer from earlier that we thank you that we do not have to to sanitize our words. We don't have to have it figured out and be theologically sound before we stand at your feet and ask for help. But we can just come to the altar. God, thank you for listening to us. Thank you even more so for speaking to us through Psalm 42. Help us to be people who can use the tools that you've given us to persevere, to participate with you in the transforming of our own hearts. Lord, 
I, I pray for anyone here who's, who's struggling with mental anguish, with depression right now, that you would help them not give up. And I pray that we would be a safe place, a safe people, uh, where people can experience healing and flourishing, uh, even if it's not sanitized right away, even if it's not cleaned up. God, thank you for the mercy and grace that you've shown us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.